Let's pray, please. Father, what a joy is ours to gather together in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ today, and now to take our Bibles and to revisit this great story of the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Father, for the hope that we have in that resurrection. Thank you for the stability that it brings to us. Thank you that the fear of death is squelched. Thank you that there is a hope for eternity in heaven with Christ. Thank you, Lord, for the model of his resurrection body that we ourselves will one day be clothed with a similar model as we look forward to our own resurrection. Father, may our hearts be prepared today as we consider these great spiritual truths from your word. Thank you, Lord, for the joy of gathering. Beautiful Lord's Day today. We are a blessed people. Clothed, well-fed, comfortable. Father, may we not be careless now with your truth. May we always tremble at your word and may we maintain an awe at the privilege of having our Bibles, having a word from you, and may we let it impact our lives now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I invite you to take your copy of God's word this morning and turn to Matthew's Gospel. And chapter 28, and let us read the story of Matthew's account of this great resurrection morning. Read with comprehension, read with emotion as you follow along as I read Matthew 28, beginning with verse 1. Imagine what these dear ones of our Lord have been through. No doubt it's been a sleepless night. At best, it's been a tossed and turning night. There has been agonizing grief. There has been a a hopelessness and a despair and a disappointment that is beyond words. They have seen with their own eyes the bloody and beaten Lord Jesus, their beloved. The one who could raise the dead, they had seen it. They had seen it outside that little community of Nain when he raised the widow's son. They had seen it outside the tomb of his beloved friend Lazarus. And now it seemed so confusing as they had watched the cross. They had seen the blood flow. They had seen his chin come down to his chest. They had heard with their own ears, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? They had heard probably at this point, barely audible, it is finished. So confusing. So grievous. So difficult to know how to respond. And so before it was daylight, after the Sabbath, Matthew 28, 1, at dawn on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to look at the tomb. What else would you do? Let's just go look at the tomb. We know from other parallel accounts in the Gospels that they had spices and they were going to treat the body to help cover the odor of decay. And as they walked, we're told that they discussed how would we ever move the stone? And yet it seemed right to go to the graveside. 
There was a violent earthquake, Matthew gives record, and an angel of the Lord came down from heaven and going to the tomb, rolled back the stone and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothes were white as snow. The guards, remember the Roman guards who had been stationed there, that there not be some conspiracy by these mighty disciples who were cowering in the upper room to steal the body. The guards were so afraid of him that they shook and became like dead men. The angel said to the women, Do not be afraid, for I know that you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. Well, he is not here. He is risen, just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, He has risen from the dead and is going ahead of you into Galilee, and there you will see him. And now I have told you. It's kind of like I carried out my message. My job's done. Come look, go tell. So the women hurried away from the tomb. I think that's a great phrase that Matthew uses next, isn't it? Afraid, yet filled with joy. You talk about conflicting emotions, huh? How are they supposed to feel? They haven't seen him yet. They know the tomb is empty. There's no body with which to dispose their spices. The angel seemed real. Go, tell him he's alive. He's going to come and talk to you. And then I have to say that Matthew is somewhat anticlimactic in his account of verse 9. Suddenly Jesus met them. Greetings, he said. (laughs) Greetings and salutations. (laughs) It seemed like there has to be more than just greetings. Certainly it was shalom, my beloved. They came to him and they clasped his feet and they worshipped him. Then Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers and go to Galilee and there they will see me. We know from John's account that when they went and they told the disciples that the disciples looked at him and evidently squinched up their face and crossed their eyes and it says, It was as though their words were nonsense. Do you believe this story? Do you believe in the resurrection of the dead? We've been talking about the resurrection of the dead for three weeks now. Two weeks ago, we talked about the resurrection of the righteous. The reality that everybody who ever lived, who knows Jesus Christ as their Savior, who believes in God, has faith in God, and is counted for their salvation, that their bodies, though their spirit and soul is with the Lord, their Bible is clear beyond a shadow of a doubt, that our bodies will come right up through the ground and will be reunited with our soul and spirit, and we will receive a glorified body. That is, a body that is equipped to live for eternity. And so shall we ever be with the Lord. The psalmist even talked about it in the beloved Psalm 23, didn't he? And we shall dwell in the house of the Lord. What's the next word? Forever. Well, these bodies aren't equipped for that. And Paul made that clear in 1 Corinthians 15, didn't he? And what is sown in corruption is raised in incorruption. Praise God, because these are really corruptible bodies. Or haven't you noticed yet? Last week, then, we talked about that phenomenal, frightening event called the Great White Throne Judgment in Revelation 20, where a thousand years following the resurrection of the righteous and a rule and reign of Christ right here on earth, there will be a resurrection of the unrighteous. Everybody who ever said, 
Bah humbug to God. Everybody who ever said, that's not what I think happens. Everybody who ever looked at their pastor and said, I understand what you're saying. I appreciate it, but that's just not for me. Because they're not rejecting their pastor, they're rejecting God's word. They're rejecting the great work of grace that has gone on, that out of his love and his kindness, he sent the Lord Jesus Christ to be our substitute. We'll talk more about this in just a minute. Today, now, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We've just read Matthew's account. It's in all four Gospels. It's an incredible event. It's hard to believe. And it's almost like not difficult to imagine that if you weren't used to Christians, face it, we're a little different. Starting with the no smoking, drinking stuff and all that. And you're just a different bunch of people. Or do you do that? I don't know. But, uh... And you walk in the back of the church and you sit down. And the pastor's talking about bodies coming up out of the ground. And, and this guy in a tomb who just raises himself from the dead. And you say, you know, these people probably be, believe there's Martians on Mars too. It's not that much different, is it? You really believe this? Well, we can't, can we, with a scientific methodology, prove it, can we? But by faith, we've accepted it. I wonder if today, though, we couldn't bring in some witnesses. I'm wondering if we couldn't bring some witnesses to the stand and we could see and listen with our own ears at their testimony. Credible witnesses, real witnesses, people who really lived... Let's do two things. Let's weigh the evidence if we're skeptic here this morning. If you're a skeptic this morning, weigh the evidence. But if you're beyond skepticism and you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ and you know it's true and your spirit bears witness with the fact that it's true and you know that it's the Word of God and you've put your hope in it, and yet you kind of think, well, why does it matter when I wake up and go to work? Does it really matter that Jesus rose from the dead? I mean, I can kind of get what happened at the cross, right? He went to the cross and he... He went to the cross and he took my punishment, kind of like the kid in seventh grade who, when Mrs. Mason, the science teacher with the big paddle, they still paddled when I was in seventh grade, back in the 30s, and... And Mrs. Mason, she, she was a She worked at... You know, I don't think... She just had biceps and she would clean clock on those boys and... And she's going to whip you. And the boy says, no, Mrs. Mason, it wasn't him. It was me. It was my place to take the whipping. The substitution thing. We can kind of get that at the cross, can't we? That I'm a sinner. That I'm condemned to die. That God is a holy, righteous God. He cannot look at sin. He cannot let me into his heaven. Because of his purity, his righteousness, his holiness, everything about him is the opposite of what we are. In fact, Paul said in Ephesians chapter 2, we are dead in trespasses and sin. And we're lost. And all we like sheep have gone astray. Everyone to his own way. And all of our righteousnesses are just as filthy rags. And so I get the cross. I get the cross that Jesus came and I can kind of put that together. And and instead of me having to go to the cross... Because of his love and his kindness, the father offered his own son as a substitutionary sacrifice, a payment, a penalty. It's like he went to the electric chair so I didn't have to pay for my own sinfulness. 
And now if I just believe in that by faith, I receive that as a gift of forgiveness. That he loves me, he died for me, he'll forgive me. Not by any merit of my own. So what's the big deal about the resurrection? Why does it matter? It's a little harder to put together, isn't it? Why did God have to resurrect him? Why couldn't Jesus have just kind of showed back up in heaven? He was God, after all, second member of the Godhead. Let's bring some witnesses in, shall we? And, and why don't we begin, begin with Jesus himself this morning? Will you go with me to John's Gospel in chapter 2? And let's see if we can solidify in our thinking the importance of the resurrection and its significance in my life today. John's Gospel in chapter 2. You need to know in the context here that this is early in the life and ministry of our Lord Jesus. You know about the miracle that he did first, right? Turning the water into wine. Remember that at the marriage in Cana? Everybody kind of knows about that, right? That just happened in the beginning of John chapter 2. So when it says after this in verse 12, it meant after that. And after that, and these signs, and he was starting to reveal his glory. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples. And there they stayed, John 2, 12, for a few days. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found men selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords and he drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. And he scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. Wouldn't you have loved to have seen that? You got the picture? The temple's a pretty big area. It's a place where people came to worship. You have to understand that this is pre-cross. This is still Old Testament sacrificial law system, right? This is, if you're poor, take a dove. And you offer this dove and you slit its little throat and you sprinkle the blood and it's a sprinkle offering and it symbolizes the atonement. It sprinkles, it, it, it symbolizes that apart from the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It symbolizes that something has to die for your sin because the wages of sin is death. It's a law of the universe. It's one of God's spiritual laws of the universe. It's undeniable and it can't change. The wages of sin is death. Always. And so then, if you were a little more well-to-do, you could have a, ca a calf or sheep there for the offerings. And then they set up money exchanges because people were coming and going from different places. And, you know, you might have a 20 and you didn't want to put that in the offering or you wanted to do this. You could exchange out your money. And then they're selling brownies and, you know, Mountain Dew on the side. And, and it just became this whole convenient worship thing. You know, the whole mindset, you can still get your 18 rounds of golf in and go worship Jesus too. It was just like, how smooth and easy can it be for you? We will help you. And then they start charging usury. And it was also, how can I go and worship without it costing me anything? Because if I come from home, I have to go out in the barn and I have to get one of my lambs. And the price of wool is way up and mutton is worth something too. And if I take this lamb and I take it down to the priest and he slaughters it and we use it for worship, then I'm just out of lamb. I have my little worship experience and I go home and I'm thinking all the time, I could have got 20 bucks for that thing. 
So what I'm going to do is just go to the temple and I'm just going to buy one. I'm going to keep my... It's just all about everything it wasn't supposed to be about. And Jesus walks into the temple courtyard and he sees it and you have to see that just a rage begins to come up inside him. This is wrong. Says he goes over, evidently where they kept some animals or something. There was some rope. He gets some of the ropes, puts them together, maybe ties a knot or two. He'd grown up in his father's carpenter shop, swinging mauls and hammers and chisels. His forearms were strong. And he just started wailing the fire out of people's backside of their bare calves, hollering at him to get out of here, kicking tables, flipping it over. Money's flying. Bird feathers are flopping. Sheep are bawling. Calves are kicking and running. Everybody's yelping and carrying on. And the high priest and everybody and the priest leaders come running out there. Hey, 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 what are you doing messing up our system? Look what it says next. Verse 16 says, to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market? His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Then the Jews, the feathers are settling. People are on their hands and knees trying to get coins out of cracks between the rocks. And the Jews say, hey, 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 bud. What miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Jesus has been standing there and he says, you want a sign? Take this temple and tear it down and in three days, I'll build it back up. What? It took 46 years to build this temple. Them are big rocks. You're crazy. Do you remember a little less than three years later when he's hanging on the cross and the, and the people pass by and they mock and they spit and they throw stuff at him that one of the things they said was, you said you were going to tear down the temple in three days and rebuild it. Why don't you at least just get yourself off the cross? And they used this very phrase to mock him. But look what John says. Jesus answered, verse 19, Destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. And then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus said had spoken. Ah, witness number one, Jesus. Lesson number one, from the anger of Jesus, the resurrection was a demonstration of his spiritual authority. You want to know where his authority came from? You want to know who he was? He was God in the flesh. You want to know how we know he was God in the flesh? Because he tore down his temple, he laid down his body, and three days later he brought it back up again. You go and do that one. Can't do it. Because you don't have the keys to death and hell and the grave. That controls us. He controls it. Christ's spiritual authority is right there demonstrated in the resurrection. Repeatedly through the Gospels, repeatedly through His ministry, Jesus told them He would die, He would be buried, He would rise again. And he did it repeatedly to demonstrate his authority 
and who he was, his identity before God, even as God. Do you notice what it said, though? After he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled. Oh, I get it. Now I understand. Oh, slow of heart, aren't we? You know, I often think in prophetic Bible passages today, and there are so many of them, of things that are to come, and and it's in contemporary theology, it's so popular to be skeptical of, of the reality of literal fulfilled prophecy. And I think of these kinds of passages where... Even some of the prophetic passages we have of things to come, of of a tribulation period, of a thousand-year millennium, of a return of Christ in the air. He said it in plain language. And then we turn it into something else. And someday when it happens, we're going to say, oh, now I see it. There it is. Better to be students of the word, isn't it? Received by faith. How does the resurrection affect me today? When I think about my Lord Jesus, I know that he was God. And even he himself said, you want a sign where my authority is? You want a miraculous sign of my power? I'll give you the resurrection. I'll give you my death, my burial, my resurrection. Witness number two. Let's bring in another witness this morning. Why does the resurrection matter? What's it have to do with me? How does it affect my life today? Witness number two. How about the Apostle Paul? How about the Apostle Paul? Can I take you to Acts chapter 17 for just a minute? Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and then Acts of the Apostles, okay? Acts chapter 17 and verse 2. Look, look at this. We have here, in essence, a template or a pattern of the, of the ministry style of the Apostle Paul. Look what he says. And you know, the Apostle Paul was a great preacher. He traveled the world of, of that era, of that geographical area of... Um, uh, the, the, the area around Israel and, and um, so forth, and present-day Turkey and so forth, and Greece. And look at verse chapter 17 of Acts, verse 1. When they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica. I don't know if that, that's Apollonia or Apollonia or Apollonia. How about Apollonia? I should have looked those words up. But that's not my point, so let those go. They came to Thessalonica. We know that one, don't we? Where the Thessalonian believers were, there, there, where there was a Jewish synagogue. Now look at verse 2. As was his custom, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days, so three weeks in a row on Sabbath day, look what it says. He reasoned with them from the Scriptures explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah. It is Christ. What's it say here? Many of the religious leaders and the philosophers and the highly educated people in these cities would sit in the temple courts and on Sabbath day... Paul would go, and it was his pattern to dialogue with them. And did you catch the word? He would reason with them, and he would show them from the book of Psalms. They had Psalms. The book of Isaiah. He would show them how Jesus had to die and that he rose again. Listen, our first lesson is from the anger of Jesus 
and that is that the resurrection demonstrates his spiritual authority. Our second witness is the logic of Paul, and he's going to show us now that the resurrection is a doctrinal necessity. It is a doctrinal necessity. When Paul would sit down and teach, he would open the scripture and he would, he would go right to this. He would show them from the Old Testament scriptures that Jesus came, died, and rose again. No one gives us more doctrinal instruction in our Bible than the Apostle Paul. It's all in the New Testament. And the, the pinnacle of that is the book of Romans. It is in-depth theology. Before we look at a verse in Romans, can we go, though, to 1 Corinthians chapter 15, and let me illustrate further what I mean by the fact that when the Apostle Paul gives witness to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, it is always in the context of the resurrection of Christ being a doctrinal necessity. You cannot have Christian Orthodox truth without a bodily resurrection from the grave of Jesus. You are something other than a Christian if you do not believe in the resurrection of Christ. And Paul proves it over and over. The most obvious point that he makes is to the letter to the Corinthian believers where he wrote to Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and look at the first few verses where Paul, in the clearest statement in all of the scripture of the gospel condensed... This is what the good news of Jesus is. This is what the gospel is. This is what saves your soul from hell. Now, brothers, 1 Corinthians 15, 1, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. And that's an interesting phrase. Otherwise you have believed in vain. We'll talk about that in a minute. Now he's going to tell us what this gospel is that we're supposed to hold on to and hold firmly to it and not believe in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you of first importance. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. That he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. And that he appeared to all these people. What is the Apostle Paul talking about? He's talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's talking about the death, the burial, the resurrection of Jesus Christ as spelled out in Scripture. And what's he saying? He's saying, if you don't have those three ingredients, a death, a burial, and a resurrection, you have no gospel. He even goes on to say in verse 14, And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. It didn't say, and if Christ has just died on the cross, he takes it through. And if he doesn't raise, then don't believe it. Look at verse 17, he says it again. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. What's he saying? He's saying, look, this is all part of a package here. It is all part of the plan of God. And there are spiritual doctrinal realities that have taken place at every level. In the mind of God, in the mind of Christ, and in the mind of the the person of faith putting their commitment in Christ, there are spiritual doctrinal realities that take place as part of our salvation. Like I said earlier, we kind of get the cross, don't we? That's where my sin got transferred. He took my whooping so I didn't have to get whooped. 
He took my sin and transferred it on himself. And that's why he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Because when our sin, the sin of the world, was put upon him at the cross, this intersection in God's timeline where the ultimate sacrificial lamb came and made a sufficient sacrifice for the sins of the world that in God's eyes was an adequate sacrifice to cover all of the sin of everybody all around the world all at one time. It all came there on him. Everybody who lived before him and everybody who lived after him and God couldn't look at his own Son, You could almost say, like, God couldn't look at himself, but I can't explain that one. God can't look at his son because he became sin for us, he who knew no sin. And that's why, God, why are you forsaking me? But then when he said, and it is finished, that God's wrath was satisfied. It's interesting, isn't it? That all took place at the cross. But in the mind of God, there is more aspects to our salvation that go on. And part of it is the resurrection itself. We'll look at that for just a minute, in just a minute. But I want to go to Galatians chapter 1, because I think that's an interesting phrase. In 1 Corinthians 15, 2, where it says, By this gospel you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preach to you. Otherwise you have believed in vain. Go a few pages further, get through 2 Corinthians and hit Galatians and look at chapter 1 and notice what the Apostle Paul says here. This is pretty interesting stuff right here. Galatians chapter 1 verse 1. When the Apostle Paul wrote this letter to the Galatian believers, he was writing to address the issue that they had changed the formula of their salvation where they had come to a place where they recognized that Christ had carried their sin at the cross, okay, but it's not automatic. Even though his sacrifice was sufficient for the sins of the world, it's only efficient for those who will put their faith and trust in him and receive that as a gift of forgiveness. But the Galatian believers started out believing that. Okay, I get it, I get it. Jesus died on the cross for my sin. I no longer have to go kill a lamb or a calf and spill blood and transfer, you know... I get it. Jesus died once for all for me. But then some false teachers came in and they said, no, 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 no. You still have to keep the law from the Old Testament. You still have to keep the Sabbath day and you still have to give sacrifices. And they begin to veer away from salvation by grace through faith in Christ alone that the Apostle Paul emphasized in 1 Corinthians 15. This is the gospel. This is of first importance. He died, he was buried, and he rose again for you. That's the package. Look what Paul says. I am astonished, verse 6 of Galatians 1, that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Verse 7, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. This is the word anathema, be damned. This is the preacher writing here. So wait a minute. Do I understand what he's saying? He's saying, I taught you the gospel. And the gospel is that saves your soul, that Christ died on the cross for your sin, was buried, and he rose again. And that's the gospel that we preached. And if anybody, if we, even if we come back and we say, oops, 
We changed our mind. Here's how the gospel really works. Tell us anathema. Get away from us. That's not the gospel. Or even if an angel from heaven were to appear to you. I want to tell you the gospel. I want to tell you how to have eternal salvation. It's more than just Jesus died. It's more than that he was buried. It's more than that he rose again. Tell that angel, anathema, be condemned. It's not true. And he goes on and he says it again. Verse 9, as we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Let me ask you a question. Do you know how many faith systems in our world today depend on the word of an angel that appeared to a man and said, everybody's got it wrong, but now you've got it right. They even make gold figures out of these angels and put them on top of their buildings. And the angel appeared and told him this, and everybody else in the churches have it wrong, and the gospel's not right. And Paul said, if the gospel is anything more or less than he came, he died, was buried, and rose again for me, then let them be eternally condemned. You have no gospel at all. It is a doctrinal necessity. We won't take time to look at it but, and go to the book of Romans this morning, but it is really an interesting study into Paul's letter to Romans. Right away in Romans 1, 4, you know what he says? With power, God raised Christ from the dead to prove that he was his son. The deity of Christ was proved. The, the very deity of Christ is contingent, the resurrection of Christ. That's a doctrinal truth. That's a doctrinal necessity. He goes on in chapter 4 and he says, He was raised again from the dead. 425, for your justification. In the mind of God, the transaction at the cross was evidently not complete. Though our sin was transferred on him, I take it from Paul's teaching in Romans 425 on justification and sections to follow. The doctrinal necessity of the resurrection includes the fact that at the resurrection is when the righteousness of Christ was imputed or set over on us. So not only did my sin go to him at the cross, but through the resurrection, the spiritual reality is, is that's when I get the righteousness of Christ put on me. Two things, it's a two-way street. You get that? My sin goes to him. His righteousness comes to me. And I take it that in the mind of God, the resurrection was necessary for all that to happen. You have to study Romans. Trust me, it's there. Witness number two is the Apostle Paul. Apostle Paul says... The resurrection is a doctrinal necessity. That affects your life today because the very gospel in which you believe is contingent, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have the witness of an angry Jesus, don't we? And the resurrection established his spiritual authority. We have the resurrection of the mighty Apostle Paul and his logic and preaching. And the resurrection is established as a doctrinal necessity. Let's quickly, let me just tell you two more quickly and we'll go to the baptism. How does the resurrection affect me? Well, there's a guy that we can relate to, right? Let's visit John chapter 20 quickly. You know this story well, and we'll not camp on it. In John's gospel in chapter 20, you'll recall that Jesus had appeared to all of his disciples in the upper room, but who wasn't there? Thomas. In John 20, it says, 
Now Thomas called Didymus, John chapter 20, verse 24. Now Thomas called Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with his disciples when Jesus came. And so the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. But he said to them, unless I see the nail marks in his hand and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. Thomas gets a lot of heat for this, but I kind of like that. He says, dead people don't rise. I saw, I was there. I saw the air go out. I saw the sag. I saw the water gush from his side when the spear went in. I saw Joseph of Arimathea take him. The ladies helped him. They wrapped his body. He was dead. I saw eyes staring wide open. No life in them. No. If he's alive, bring him to me. I'll touch him with my own hands. Thomas says, show me. He's from Missouri, wasn't he? Show me. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, verse 26, and Thomas was with them, and though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side, and stop doubting and believe. And Thomas went from a first-class skeptic to a humbled, confident believer in the Lord Christ. And his next words were, my Lord and my God. Why? Because he touched him. He touched him. In the skepticism of Thomas, we have proven for us that the resurrection was a physical reality. It really happened. It really happened. It's a physical reality. Well, we'll not take time to turn there, but there is one more example that I like, and it's in John's Gospel, excuse me, it's in Revelation chapter 1, and it's John on the island of Patmos. And you know what it says? It said that he sees Christ, and Christ appears to him, and he's holding the keys to death in Hades. And he says to John, I am the Alpha and the Omega. I am the beginning and the end. I was dead, but now I live forevermore. His eternal authority over death, hell, and the grave is established in the resurrection. And John's vision brings that to us in Revelation chapter 1, beginning with verse 9. There's our witnesses in the anger of Jesus. We find that the resurrection is the very basis for his spiritual authority for kicking over tables. In the logic of the great apostle Paul, we have the, the doctrinal necessities of the resurrection. We have nothing to believe in if there's not a resurrection. It's all interwoven. In doubting Thomas, in Thomas the skeptic, we have the veracity, the physical veracity, the physical authenticity, the reality of a physical resurrection. He really did. Thomas touched him for us. In John and his vision, that great vision of the revelation of Jesus Christ, he sees the one who was dead, who is now living forevermore, who holds the keys over life and death and hell and the grave. Why do we not worship Muhammad? Why do we not follow Joseph Smith? 
Why are we not into Confucius say? Why not Buddha? Why not Sun Myung Moon, who owns property in Jefferson County, by the way? Why? Because they don't hold the keys, my friend. Because when you put them in the ground, they stay in the ground. Because most of whom I've just referenced, another angel from heaven came. It was an angel from another place besides God's heaven and told them the new gospel and Paul says, be eternally condemned. You stick with the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's it. And I am a follower of Christ today because I believe that Thomas was a reliable reporter and that he really did touch his wound and touch his side. And he went down to his knees like John did in his vision, went on his face and he said, my Lord and my God. And I'll tell you something. Someday, every skeptic, every atheist, everyone will stand before this King Jesus in all of his power and authority. And you know what you won't do? You won't dance. You won't dance before you, Jesus. You won't do that. You won't sing a song with Jesus. You won't crawl up on his lap and snuggle in. You know what you're going to do? You're going to do what every testimony in Scripture says happens when they're encountered face-to-face with King Jesus, the resurrected Christ. You fall on your face. Will you bow the knee today? Will you bow your head today? Will you give up your pride and your sinfulness He came and He carried your sin to the cross and He rose again for your justification. Do you believe that? Amen. The Bible says that today is the day of salvation. Easter Sunday is a great day to be baptized, but it's a greater day to just be saved. Let's bow in prayer. Listen, I challenge you to admit your sinfulness today, to believe in this Jesus. You're going to hear some testimonies in just a minute. I hope you can stay another 10, 15 minutes or so. People who have entered into new life in Christ and out of obedience to Christ, they're going to enter into baptism. By the way, the Apostle Paul taught us in Romans chapter 6 in in our list of doctrinal necessities that the very imagery of baptism, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ symbolizes in the water baptism our identification spiritually with the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. Have you bowed your knee to this king? Have you bowed your knee to this resurrection and life, Jesus? This one who has all authority and who holds the keys, why don't you make him your savior today? In your heart, admit your sinfulness. Believe that he is the Christ. Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Another doctrinal necessity, Romans 10, 9 and 10. Father, you know our hearts and our minds today. And we would humble ourselves before you Humble ourselves before King Jesus. Father, thank you for the message of the gospel that Jesus died, was buried, and rose again for our sin. Lord, move our hearts, stir our minds. May we, by faith, transfer the guilt of our sin over unto Jesus and receive his righteousness through his resurrection. Now bless the individuals who enter the waters of baptism this morning to bear public testimony of their faith in Christ, may it be most meaningful to to them and to the audience. Continue your work in us, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.